Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kirk, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. This is Robert from Nostalgic Video and Cars, here to tell you about Bellador's Pizza and Pasta, where the food is fresh, the sauce homemade, and the price is fantastic. They offer Chicago-style stuffed crust pizza, New York-style pizza, calzones, strombolis, pasta entrees, beer wine, and great desserts. They even make the bread fresh daily. Hey, they offer catering, and any order over 10 bucks, free delivery. So give them a call at 727-581-5000. Place your order now. They're located at 131 Clearwater Lager Road near downtown Largo. Or visit their website, belladorspizza.com. What is the Italian job? A seating chaos, a smash and grab raid, and four million dollars. Four million dollars? I think we could take that over, Roger. Go! only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. Good evening, Roger. Croker. I've got a job lined up. Get out of here. It's, it's all here. Maps, drawings, plans, everything. You've been put up to the cemetery. You've been bribed to upset my natural rhythm and ruin my health. Michael Caine does the Italian job on the outside. Masterminding the job from the inside, Noel Coward. Two gentlemen on the job. Does Mr. Bridget think he can take over Europe from a prison cell? Why do you say them Italian birds? Oh, they're big. I like them big. Really? (laughs) Big. Big. Also on the Italian job, Raph Fallon, Tony Beckley, Maggie Bly, Rosano Brazzi. I want Charlie Croker given a good going over. Hello, Charlie. Lovely Charlie. Nice Charlie. Good to see you, Charlie. Now, what would you like? <laughs> Everything. Hey! Knock that bloody water cannon out! Alan Decadenay, elderly racer and raconteur, as you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars.
Okay, listeners, welcome. You are tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Run your computers and Google Tantalk1340.com, and you can definitely hear us in the studios in downtown Clearwater, but you may not be able to see me because I'm way back in the can. You're way back. I haven't uh, zoomed in on you, but you, you look all you look all blurry. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, our good friend Artie Fletcher has got a band coming in here in a little bit, so rather than... Uh, kind of uh, dislodged me we figured well let's just go ahead and start the show from the uh, back production room which i seem to spend a lot of my time anyway actually i should put a cock back here don't you think cedric yeah man yeah hey why Hitch. not we're gonna rename it after you we're gonna name it after me. yeah how you doing tonight cedric i'm doing okay i'm doing okay yeah see where did i leave off at i said yeah run your computers and google tantalk1340.com okay don't forget to check out our website callstreetmotorsports.com let's see oh yeah be sure and like us on facebook uh let's see if you've missed any of our past shows you can check out our website callstreetmotorsports.com and you can visit our podcast page which is nostalgic radio and cars and you know what we might have a little giveaway uh here a little bit later in the show oh, so we need to Give away some cookies and yeah, jerky. Cookies and prizes. Yeah. And, and, and don't forget to get ready to pot up the, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, the, yeah. the, 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 the uh, what is it? What's that? What's that soundtrack we use all the time? Is it, uh, let's the price is right. The price is right. Yeah. The price is always right because it's free. But uh, we'll be announcing that in a few minutes shortly. But let me tell you about this past weekend. This past weekend, yes, 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 it was an amazing weekend. I use that word amazing a lot, don't I? But anyway, it was a spectacular weekend up in uh, north of Jacksonville at Amelia Island. And uh, we couldn't have had better weather on Saturday and Sunday. Now, Thursday and Friday, it was a little nasty and wet and gloomy, you know. But it was on the shoreline. It was actually kind of cool, you know, because North uh, Jacksonville area is um, very natural looking. It's just, you know, rolling sand dunes. It's right on the coast. You know, you got a lot of natural live oak trees up there. And it's just really cool. It's just like, it's kind of like how you would envision Florida, you know, maybe 50, 60 years ago. You know, it's fairly natural and preserved looking. And, uh, you know, um, I'm kind of a conservationist, even though I'm a gun carrying conservationist. I, uh, I, I like, I like you shoot, nature. You life. shoot people when they, when they uh, litter? No, but I feel sorry for that poor little Indian that stands alongside of the road in that hey. commercial and drops a tear you know when people litter you know i'm not a big fan of that should have given him a gun yeah or bow and arrow you know but anyway who knows where that was filmed you never know it could have been a seminal indian you know could have been uh what was his name uh chief uh it'll come to me here in a minute chief osceola that's it of the seminal indian tribe yeah that'll make my wife happy because she's a go Knowles seminal anyway but at any rate, uh, so what do we got going on this week? Let me get to the uh, the festivities of the upcoming 12-hour Sebring, which is this weekend, the 12th through the 15th. The weekend after that, at Bradenton Motorsports Park in Sarasota. It's not Sarasota, it's actually Bradenton. is the National Muscle Car Shootout. Now, if I sound a little bad, guys, it's because I have a little bit of a cold. So my, you know, I'm not, uh, uh, I'm feeling fine, but I got this, uh, my voice is not sounding join, right, is it? Join the club, everyone. Uh, everyone I've run into has has been sick excuse me i I got i got over it like last week did you yeah Yeah, still weird still lingering a little i think somebody took a sip out of one of my bottle bottles when i wasn't looking and then poisoned me or something like i'm telling you man every everybody around here has been sick yeah okay but anyway and then of course in two weeks we've got march 28th through the 30th we have in our own backyard the firestone grand prix of st petersburg i think i said it right for a change usually i always get it backwards i used to go to the honda the St. Pete Honda Grand Prix or something corny like that, but it's the Firestone Grand Prix of St. Petersburg, and I want to give a big shout-out to our friends up there in, uh, in the PR department. That's Paul Valancourt, who's Canadian, who operates the uh, Indy races up in uh, Canada, and uh, Kathleen Stemlack. They're uh, the media people that we talk to from time to time. So um, look forward to seeing them. Should be an exciting race. They've got some good support races coming up as well. Also on the 22nd, Okay, if you recall, if you see last month, we had a couple guys on uh, father son team. Uh, it's actually Bubba's East Coast Customs, I believe, and it was Tom and Bubba, and they're doing a uh, charity fundraiser for Burt Reynolds next week or week after next, I guess, and it's for the Burt Reynolds Institute of Film and Theater. So uh, we're going to be down there. I think that's on Sunday. So uh, if anybody can make it down there, it should be a lot of fun as well. Also this weekend in our own backyard as well again. On Saturday, the 15th, is the Mustang Car Show. I guess it's sponsored by the Suncoast Mustang Clubs. I should know that because I'm kind of friends with a lot of those guys. But it's right here at the England Brothers Band Shell, right off uh, 82nd Avenue in Pinellas Park. 
Hey, a big shout-out to my friends down there at Forte's Inboard and Auto Connection. Give them a call down there at 727-544-6440. That's 727-544-6440. If you want somebody with some pride and some experience working on your vintage, classic, or modern car, you definitely want to give Dom and his family down there a call. And if you've got a boat that's got an inboard or outboard motor in it, you definitely want to give Dom and his family a call at Forte's Inboard and Auto Connection. And don't forget, they're going to be one of the sponsors down there at the Mustang Show this weekend down in Pinellas Park. That's Forte's Inboard and Auto Connection. 727-544-6440. Big shout out to you guys. You guys do great work. We have a uh, caller who has a car show to mention. We do. Cal. Oh, okay. Good, good. But all right. uh, Who we got here? This is Al, the mechanic. I got a sore throat. Somebody must have drank something. (laughs) I've been eating chicken out of a can, and the cans are all destroyed. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me. Are you making fun of me? (laughs) No, this is actually Madonna. I have a sore throat. How are you? Now, wait a minute. I know who this is. Wait a minute. This is the guy that plays guitar and runs a bakery, right? Hey, listen, I wanted to tell you, um, uh, Chris and Stacey King from FAP Machine, you know, they've been proud. You know, I'm yeah. sure you know those guys. Yeah. They're having a car show on the 22nd of this month in Dunedin, right off Michigan. Okay. What's it called? Yeah. Uh, I don't know, but it's the fourth annual. Last year was 200 cars. We're actually going to have a booth there. Uh, I got pastries and stuff, so it's going to be kind of fun. But uh, I-, I didn't call it prom- promote me. You know, it's all about you. No, no, it's about it's about the people who come on the show. It's not about me. You can see me anytime, anywhere. I've known the guys for the longest time, uh, so I don't know if if Al's going to drag something out. Maybe we should get him to drag out the ranchero. You know how that is, or or something. But uh, bring bring something if you want to come. You know what I'm saying? Even if, even if it looks bad, I'm sure you got something you can dig up, right? Uh, well, you know what? I could bring a wheelbarrow full of parts that somewhat resemble a car. Well, there you go, and you just like have a big auction, you know, auction off the whole wheelbarrow. Yeah. Yes. Or you could just say, guess how many parts of what car are in here, and just have like a, uh, you know, you know, it'd be like a raffle, a, a car, a fundraiser. That's what we. Now that's a good idea, Charlie. I think we should do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That'd be really cool. It's kind of like back in the day when they put marbles in a jar. You know, guess how many marbles? And meanwhile, the guy's got five thousand dollars in his pocket, and people are walking around going, "There's two hundred marbles in there. I know it." Stupid. It's just one of those things. But yeah, the twenty second from ten to three. It's right after the Dunedin pool over there off Michigan. Uh, I forget the name of the church parking lot. Okay, that's in two weeks, right? Yeah. Well, we can have something like that. I'll get back with you next week. So you're on Tuesdays now? Yeah, they moved us to Tuesday because otherwise we would have been preempted by ball sports and then they would have bounced us to three o'clock and then five o'clock and then, you know, so. We just decided to move to two o'clock or seven o'clock on Tuesdays, which is actually okay because now I can go to the drag races on Wednesday night because down at uh, Sunshine they have uh, Tess and Tune, or I can go to uh, Bike Night at uh, Quaker Steak and Lube. See, so I'm free to do that yeah, stuff now. Cool. Uh, yeah, I think it's going to rain tomorrow. I was going to take the bike down, but uh, Stacy and Chris are taking their uh, their rail down to uh, Bradenton next Thursday. I'm going to videotape them because he wants some shots. We're doing a commercial. Okay. Now wait a minute. If if they're when is their show again? This is on the twenty second. Well, that's the same weekend as the uh, National Muscle Car Shootout down in Bradenton. Are they going to be down there for that as well? No, they won't be there. They they got they got a top fuel rail. Right, I know. Yeah, so uh, you know they're they're high dollar and they they do real well. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Got some, but I just want to give you a call. I hope you guys are doing good. I know yeah. Cedric's doing good. I got to bring you guys some some pastries. Pizza. Why don't you send us some pizza down tonight? I I can I can't do it tonight. I just pulled up to the gym and I'm I'm thinking I'm going to put on uh, tan talk. I'm like, oh crap! You got your show going. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. Now, see, Alan doesn't have to call in now because you called in and mentioned the show for the guys. So uh, yeah. we'll definitely put that on our couch. Just give it a mention one more time, Charlie, and then we got to go. Uh, that'll be uh, the twenty second of March, uh, two thousand fourteen, downtown. Uh, actually, um, off of um, Michigan Avenue and Dunedin, right past as you're heading. Uh, West on Michigan from County Road One. It's about a you know a block or two after the pool. Over okay, there. Cool. cool. Well, next week when we announce it, we'll be closer to that date and we'll get real specific yeah. on the name and the address. How about that? Exactly. Instead of me giving you some, uh, as they say, half s. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Charlie. Thanks for tuning in. Appreciate it. You guys have a good one. See you. Okay. Uh, that car show is called Show and Shine Under the Oaks by the way, and it will be at the Presbyterian Church in Dunedin. 
So uh, next week we'll give you all the specifics on it, or you can just Google it. Actually, it's listed on FloridaCarshows.com. Hey, what do we got spinning around in the turn-em-up table over there? We got something. We have a band. <laughs> this is my this is my mom's favorite band. Is it really? Okay, well, I think, what is it called? It's called Queen or something like that? No, it's called Killer Queen by yeah. Queen, right? There you, there you go, man. Okay, well, stick around. Hey, you're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. we got a very fascinating gentleman coming on a little bit later. So uh, stick around. Again, Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Don't go away. This is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. If you'd like to play golf, Magnolia Valley Golf Club is offering some specials this week. Give them a call up there at 727-847-2342. They have a 9-hole executive course, and they have an 18-hole par 72. And they've got great food on the 19th hole. So call my friend Pete at 727-847-2342. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Five-time Le Mans winner, three-time Daytona 24-hour winner, two-time world sports car champion. You're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back. Thank you, Derek. Matter of fact, I saw Derek this weekend while I was up in Amelia Island. And uh, let me get back to Amelia Island real quick because that was just fantastic. Sunday started out a great day. It was a little bit cool in the morning, which was fine with me. Got a little warmer in the afternoon. I was supporting a jacket and a nice shirt and loafers and blue jeans so i kind of like fit the part and you know legging around my usual media kit with me my camera and my audio equipment and stuff but um my buddy mark showed up and hank and uh mark had never been to a million island before he, he definitely said that that was one event that was on his bucket list and i'll tell you what when he got there he was extremely overwhelmed he had no idea there was 300 cars on the lawn i think the two cars that won the award uh, best of show was a horse and a uh, Scarab race car. So that was very fitting. But uh, the cars that are there are just unbelievable. I mean, there was a, uh, a number of Shelbys. There was uh, Cobras, obviously. There was tons of Porsches. There was an exhibit there of Studebakers, kind of some unusual stuff. Joel Bortz, who's been on our show a number of times, he always manages to bring some amazing cars. You know, the cars that they build and display, at, let's say, like the... Uh, New York Auto Show or the Paris Auto Show, you know, prototype cars that never really seem to make it to production, but they're basically exercises and designs, you know, concept cars. That's what they are. Speaking of which, I ran into uh, Steve Pastoner, who was a former designer for uh, General Motors. Most notably, his, to his credit, is the uh, Buick Grand National and the uh, Buick uh, Skylark GSX and GSs. Uh, I talked to Wayne Cherry, you know, he was the chief of design for General Motors before, um, Ed Welburn, I talked to Jack Telnack. He was the vice president of design for Ford Motor Company. Worked on the original 65 Mustang design program and 
to his credit, uh, he's responsible for the Fox body Mustang. So, I mean, you just meet some interesting people. Pete Brock was there. I talked to Pete Brock. I got a chance to meet Louis Myers, you know, of Offenhauser fame. I talked to uh, Al Unser. I talked to uh, Bobby Unser. Uh, just, just, you know, it's the one place you can go where you can see, meet, and greet everybody. You know, I stood around, hung out with uh, Corky Coker of Coker Tire. I ran into Dana Meekum there. Uh, he had a really cool 1967 Corvette race car there. Uh, you know, just uh, Bruce Myers out of uh, California. He's got an amazing collection of cars. Bruce Canapa was there. Uh, our friends from Heacock Insurance were there. But the cars are just absolutely incredible, and you really need to go to the website and just check it out. It'll be posted just soon because it's just too much to describe. But uh, obviously, I'm into some of the vintage racing cars that were there. But Bill Warner does an amazing job with Amelia Island. He comes with multiple themes for cars to show up on the lawn i mean i don't care whether it's vintage duesenbergs or ferraris or maseratis or this gentleman that we met a couple of years ago at uh at winter park he's from texas and he brought along three of his beautiful stutzes we're talking uh 20s model roaring 20s model cars you know i mean you talk about great gatsby uh cars these stutzes exemplify uh, that era, you know, brass era cars. Well, they're not really brass era. They're uh, just after brass era cars. But, you know, just uh, incredible stuff. It's just, it it would take forever to go into detail. But uh, you definitely have to check out Amelia Island. It should be on everybody's bucket list. What else did I do? Let's see. Uh, who else did I run into? Of course, I was standing around, too. I ran into David Hobbs. He's been on a radio show before. It's kind of hobnobbing with Hobbs. And uh, he's coming back on again. Let's see who else. Tom Cotter was there, so he's coming back on the show. Uh, just, uh, you know, the usual cast of carers. Oh, oh, but, but I got to meet the guest of honor at Amelia Island this year. The famous German racing car driver, Jochen Maas. And that was pretty cool. I got a picture with him. I got an autograph and I invited him to come on a radio show. So that's pretty cool stuff. See what I mean? You got to go to Amelia Island. You got to check it out, man. Take my word on this stuff. Anyway... On Saturday, we had cars and coffee first thing in the morning. And then at 10 o'clock, I had to scurry, hurry and scurry over to uh, Festivals of Speed that was held at the Omni Plantation. And because I was one of the judges there, and we had to do the judging for the event that was there. And then at 1 o'clock, I had to hurry up and get over to uh, Mike Flynn's auction there at the inaugural Amelia Island Select Auction. And let me tell you something. That was spectacular. We had some fantastic cars. It was 125 cars. Just some really cool stuff. I mean, there was 30s Woodies. There was a 1929 Packard Speedster runabout. A really, really cool car. There was a 1967 Fairlane Factory 427 R-Code 4-Speed. We had a Mercedes 190SL. We had a BMW 73 3-liter CSI. Really cool piece. I like that car a lot. I've always been a big BMW fan. Uh, we had... A really wild, this is one of my favorite cars there. It belongs to somebody that I know. It's a 1935 Packard Rumble Seat Roadster. Now, apparently, as the story goes, they only made a handful of those for 1935, and I believe that was the last year for the Packard Roadster with a factory rumble seat. But you talk about a resto mod, a really true, well-built, okay, and I'm talking almost SEMA-quality hot rod. This thing had a crate Hemi in it, 426 Hemi, pair of quads sitting on top of it under some uh, stacks, and it had a five-speed Tremec. Now, that is a cool hot rod. Think about it. A 1935 Packard Roadster, okay, that from the outside, with the exception of the mag wheels that were on it, really looked dead original. Just a cool, sleek-looking car, even way back in the 30s. You know, that was just a wicked little car, okay? Anyway, see what else did they have? Oh, they had a couple 37, 38 Packard Coupes. They had uh, probably the nicest, nicest 59 convertible Chevrolet known to mankind. A gentleman out of uh, Orlando had restored that car, and everything that this guy does is over, over, over restored. Another cool car that was there was a 1958 DeSoto Adventurer convertible with a factory dual quad 392 Hemi. Last year for that motor, I believe. Just a really cool car. And a lot of these cars, these are $150,000, $200,000, $300,000 cars. The Watson Roadster was there, okay? There was another cool uh, indie style kind of car. There was a one of two, I believe, uh, Bentleys 
Um, I don't know a lot about it, but I'll tell you what, if you Google the website, which is HollywoodCarAuctions.com, you can go to the website and there's some information on it. Not to mention, yours truly was there, and I was covering the event for Sports Car Market. So in a couple months, I will, in fact, I completed it today. I wrote the summary on the event, and I'm going to be doing the reports on the cars. So that was really exciting. Of course, on Thursday... Uh, basically, they had viewing, and we were setting all the cars up. On Friday, I went to Gooding Auction, saw my good friends over there, David Gooding, Charlie Ross, and Janelle. She's such a sweetheart. And uh, their auction was absolutely fantastic, as usual. The best of the best. I mean, they did $31 million in sales. I mean, you know, but it's all Highline stuff. One of the Porsches, the race car, the 907 race car, uh, with amazing history, $3.5 million. A uh, Porsche RSK, uh, just you know, again, three and a half million dollars. A nine eleven that was a lightweight car. You know, four hundred thousand dollars or whatever. No, I take it back. A million. It was a seventy three RS. A million. A million two twenty five. I believe that's what the or two seventy five. That's what the car sold for. So keep in mind, you know, you guys find these really, really, really rare cars. They're just bringing all the money. Let's see what else we got going on. I think we got to get our guest on here in a few minutes. We're going to go to a song. And uh, don't forget that the HSR Midi Race at Road Atlanta is next month. Okay, that's another. I go, I've i been going to more of the vintage races. I haven't been going to too much of the late model races. I didn't sign up for Sebring this year. Uh, I'm going to probably cover it next year. And uh, I didn't go to Daytona. But, you know, my schedule's just been so busy. I just miss a lot of these events. But anyway, Cedric, we got something on the turntable there? We do. Okay. Let's go ahead and play that. We're going to get our guest on the line. And this gentleman is going to give us some real true stories about racing in the 60s and 70s with some amazing cars, particularly Porsches. But he raced everything from Rally cars, Formula One cars, Trans Am cars to the mighty Can-Am cars. You guys are tuning into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Stick around. We will be right back. the sixth attempt on the life of President de Gaulle. In desperation, the OAS terrorists hired a professional killer. His code name, the Jackal. This is a once-in-a-lifetime job. Whoever does it can never work again. How much do you want? Half a million. What? In cash. I'd like to know how you expect us to find half a million dollars so quickly. A desperate plan. Nothing left to chance. Every chilling detail. Time to the second. How do you stop the jackal? How do you stop the clock? Commissioner Berthier, we're in trouble on this one, since not even the OAS know who he is. Action service can't destroy him. Territorial surveillance can't pick him up at the border because they don't know what he looks like. An unparalleled manhunt. A determined and relentless killer. Impossible to know. Impossible to stop. chilling moment of Frederick Forsyth's sensational book, brilliantly filmed by director Fred Zinnemann. He's vanished. I don't think we really ever had any idea what kind of man you've been pursuing. Excuse me. 
It's just occurred to me that we've got two days to catch the jackal. Of course, liberation. That's what he's been waiting for. Step by step, with fascinating precision, the jackal moves closer to the moment of kill, to the day of the jackal. This is Brian Redman, retired racing driver, nine times racing champion, still racing at 76, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cast. Okay, we're back, and you tune into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. This gentleman has had a very successful racing career, starting out in rallies, winning the 1967 European Rally Championship. He then ventured into Formula One for a short period of time, and then ultimately in sports car racing. He set numerous track records across Europe and the United States, earning himself the title Quick Vic. I am delighted to welcome to the show this evening, Vic Alford. Vic, are you there? I'm here, yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, nice to talk to you, Robert. I was just uh, getting all excited about the day of the jackal was there listening to that as well. Well, yeah, you know what? I thought that was a very, very good movie when it came out back in, I think, was it 71 or 2, something like that, 73, somewhere? I remember, it was a long while ago, but it was very, very good. Well, anyway, tell us a little bit about how you got started in the racing world. And you know what? I'm delighted, so delighted to have you on the show, in fact, because you're the only driver so far that I've had on the show that actually has had rally driving experience. So tell us a little bit about how rally driving is so much different and so much more challenging than any other type of race car driving. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, um, first of all, how did I get started? I got started because my father took me to see the very first British Grand Prix right after World War Two, And we sat in the grandstands at Silverstone. And I saw, when I saw the cars for the first time, I simply said, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, it was just, uh, I don't know, the color, the sound, uh, the speed, everything about it. And uh, at that time, we didn't have driving schools. There was no... Uh, go-karts didn't exist you know the only way to go racing was to somehow uh work, work your way into some sort of car none of us had much money i had no money at all uh and i did in fact i didn't even have a car when i started i started as being by being a navigator co-driver in rallies that you just mentioned and then slowly managed to ease my way into the other side of the car so that I was driving it instead of telling it where to go. Who were some of the drivers back in the day that really influenced you? And then why did you start out in rally driving as opposed to, let's say, F1 or sports car racing or something like that? I mean, obviously there's F2, 3, and 1. You have to work your way up the ranks, but still. Well, uh, wherever you started in racing, it was you know, quite expensive. Uh, even starting right at the bottom, there was nothing like, uh, you know, there just weren't the facilities as there are today where a younger driver can go to a driving school like Skip Barber, for example, here in the United States. They, even schools like that didn't exist back then. And so somehow you had to start somewhere on your own. In my case, I started in rallies because it was cheaper to be a co-driver in a rally than to try and be a driver in a race car. And it was still cheaper to be a driver in a rally than to be a driver in a race car. So eventually I got into the driving seat of rally cars and immediately started winning. Um, just went, uh, and that, since I was there, the logical thing was to stay driving a, a rally car and move slowly up the, the ladder as I did at that point. Uh, first of all, winning rallies in England, which is where I lived then. I was, I was born in England and slowly moving into international rallies, first with little tiny cars, and then eventually getting into uh, more powerful factory cars. I drove for Triumph. I drove for BMC, actually, with Austin Healy's and Minis as a co-driver. Then I moved to Triumph, where I first drove as an actual driver uh, and started to win with them. Uh, And everything just sort of snowballed very slowly from there. What was the first rally car? My first ever rally car was in 1962, and it was a 750cc DKW. Really? A DKW? An Audi, basically. 
Far from being an Audi. (laughs) Audi took over what was then NSU. I'm not sure what what DKW became. Maybe it sort of became part of Audi later on. But it was a little, you know, everybody in the States knows about Saab. Right. uh, The Swedish cars, which in those days had a three-cylinder 741cc two-stroke engine. Uh Well, the DKW was from Germany, and it was actually even smaller than a than a Saab, but it had a similar engine, 745cc, three-cylinder, two-stroke, a real screaming engine, uh-huh. which was actually very, very powerful in those days. And I won two consecutive national rallies in Great Britain in England with that two weeks, literally two weeks running, uh, which earned me a, a spot in the Triumph team for later in the year and then into the year 63. Now, the DKW was a front-wheel drive car, right? Yep, it was a front-wheel drive car, and I don't like front-wheel drive cars, generally. Oh, really? It was it was better to be driving a front-wheel drive car than no car at all. Okay. Well, now, I was just going to ask you that. You know, So, in other words, if you, you said the following year you drove a Triumph, so that's rear-wheel drive, obviously. Right. And then, yeah. so, is your driving habits... Your techniques have to be completely different, correct? Oh, they're very different. I can drive a front-wheel drive car. I just don't like it. I just don't like front-wheel drive cars uh, because you uh, front-wheel drive cars are very good for normal driving. They have a great deal of what I would call negative safety. In other words, if the driver does the wrong thing, and uh, frankly, many drivers do do the wrong thing when they're faced with any sort of emergency, the car reacts to to being guided in the wrong direction and it correct, reacts correctly. Whereas if you do the wrong thing in a real-wheel drive car, you can make things worse than they started out to be. Okay. But back to the cars again. You know, I, the, the, the DKW was great. Then I went to, to Triumph. And after Triumph, uh, I spent a year with them and uh, was getting great results with the Triumph TR4 up against the big works Austin Healy's. And really? They were actually a lot more powerful. But I could I could uh, stand up to them in the Triumph, and from there I went to to Ford for three years. And after three years with Ford, I'd started doing quite a bit of rallying, driving Ford Cor- uh, Cortina GTs, and then Lotus Cortina, which was you know a very fast car in those days. And then things started to go wrong, and instead of winning, I was I was within 20 miles of the finish line when leading when the car broke and a couple of things like that happened through uh, through a couple of years until I got so, so fed up with it. I At the end of 1966, um, Porsche had just introduced the 911. They weren't rallying in it and they weren't even racing in it. And in fact, I discovered they weren't really very interested in creating it or or formulating it as a as a, a competition car, but after my years or a year particularly with Ford of not really doing very well, I went to Porsche, and I suggested to them that that was going to be the car of the future, the 911. And they said, "Well, we don't think so. We're not interested. We don't have any money for a budget. Um, so, no." I said, "Well, look. I tell you what. Why did you lend me one? Just lend me one." One a factory rally car for one weekend. I'll go to Corsica, which was a very difficult rally, literally 24 hours nonstop racing around the island of Corsica, where the roads are tiny, narrow, mountainous. And uh, after a bit of thought, they said, "Okay, we'll lend you one." But uh, that's all you get. You get a car, no practice car, no expenses, no money. We'll send a couple of mechanics with a van and a and a little and some tools to give you assistance on the event, and that's it. So I really was taking my life in my hands. I was ditching a well-paid job to take on that, which had no guarantee whatsoever. But I guess right. I didn't guess right. I was right. The 911 was destined to be a great car, and I went to a Corsica. I'd never even driven one until I got to Corsica, and... Uh, just before the event, I'd, I'd used a, a rental car to do a, a complete reconnaissance over and over and over again on the route and the, the speed stages. And then uh, the race car, the rally car, arrived on a trailer with Baron Hushka von Hanstein, who was then the competitions manager of uh, Porsche, and uh, the car and the mechanics. And they uh, turned up with the car on a trailer with a van, on the uh, quayside in Bastia, 
And I looked in the van, and there were just a few spare wheels and a few taut tools. And I said to Von Hanstein, well, yeah, but th- this is very when, when does the van with the spares arrive? <laughs> and, uh, he said, well, I said, you know, you, you can trust me now. If I'm going to drive a factory car, just tell me what might break so that when it does break, I'm aware of it, and I'll know what to do. And he looked me straight back in the eyes and said, uh, my boy, Vicky, you don't understand. Porsches don't break. <laughs> well, after what I'd been through for the whole of that year, I just couldn't believe my ears hearing something like that. But, you know, he was absolutely right. No production 911 that I ever drove ever broke anything. So with this car, any was it special prepared anyway, or was this just a showroom stock 911 no, that they gave you? It was a showroom stock car, but... But back in those days, rally preparing, uh, you know, depend- it depended to a certain extent on, on the group and class that you might be running in. But very little was done. It, it was a little bit more powerful. It had slightly different, stiffer suspension and things like that. Uh, a little bit more power than the standard road car, but not far removed from it. Uh, it had about 185 horsepower, whereas, whereas a normal 911, I think, had about 165 um, same size wheels and tires they weren't allowed to be changed it's just the, the tire types could be changed and uh, the gear ratios could be changed suspension and that was it otherwise it was very very similar to the 911 that one would go, go and buy in a showroom huh. and on that very first event although I knew Corsica quite well by then I'd never driven the car but I finished third well that's excellent <laughs> it was excellent exactly and then Back to Stuttgart, suddenly everybody in Stuttgart was thinking maybe he's right, maybe this is going to be a, a, a winning car. So the next step was Monte Carlo Rally for 1967. And there suddenly, uh, I was just a one-man band, in fact, just me, uh, rallying for Porsche because they'd never been interested in rallies before. And we went to Monte Carlo and I, I led actually most of the way and then got caught with the wrong tires where I had no access to the right ones on the very, very last special stage over the Col de Torini, and it started to snow. And the snow just dropped me back. I lost a couple of places and still finished third. Wow. Who was your co-driver? My co-driver was a young Englishman named, young then, uh, named David Stone. Uh, he came to me when I first went to Triumph, and we just hit it off together right uh, from the word go. And we had a great partnership. We were together the whole time. As long as I stayed in rallies, he was my co-driver. Let me ask you a uh, qu- Go ahead. I'm sorry. sorry. No, go ahead, Bay. Um Let me ask you a question for, for our listeners, because a lot of people don't know, and I've seen legit rallies before, and evidently the the way it's... Uh, kind of explain to us how it how it's mapped out. You basically say it basically says go six miles, turn left, go five no, miles, no, no, turn. No, 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 Is that it? No, no, not really. Oh, okay, that, that that's a sort of uh, family fun type. Oh, okay, that, that your local uh, motor club might do on a Sunday afternoon. Okay, finishing up at a picnic somewhere. Because you have checkpoints, too, and yours... International rallying is actually pure road racing on closed, not always, but generally public roads. Okay. So in Corsica, for example, the roads are all asphalt, uh, but narrow, twisty, mountainous roads. Monte Carlo, same roads, but or similar roads, but uh, generally, not always, but generally a good deal of it is taking place on ice and snow. Okay. Uh, for those of the listeners who follow it a little, just last week over here was the International Rally in Mexico. And that is all on dirt roads. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens in these is the actual format changes a little and has changed a little bit since, since my day. Now it's more concentrated. But basically, um, there are a number of what are called special stages or speed tests, which might be anywhere from, say, three miles long to 30 miles long or more. And those are the, you're running against the clock. So it's simply the fastest guy in the fastest car who gets the best. Uh, literally, your, your time 
is the um, is what marks you right. You know, if, if it's a a thirty mile stage and you do it in twenty minutes, you've got twenty minutes on your timesheet. The next car along does it in twenty one minutes, so he is already a minute behind you. Okay, stand. And, and there are a number of these events, a number of these time special stages. Normally, on a on a modern international rally today, there would probably be oh around two hundred miles of these different stages. Probably, maybe fifteen or even twenty stages, coming up to a total of two hundred miles, shall we say? And it's quite simple: the fastest driver wins. Okay, what does the co-driver do basically? Well, the, the co-driver is an absolutely integral part of it. Okay. Because it, it, today it's more limited, but I'll go back to my day or today, even uh, forgetting about the limitations. We would go drive over a special stage, and I would be, we'd drive over it at quite moderate speed, and I would call out our uh, all the drive uh, all drivers have their own systems, or at least all the languages have their own system. We would have a system. A, a shorthand, if you like, and I would call out to my, as we're driving over the first time, I would call out to my co-driver who would then write it down in shorthand what I could see, what, what the road looked like to me uh, in, in terms of uh, straights, um, sharpness of corner. Um, it's very difficult to describe verbally, but how sharp the corner is, how far, not how fast it is. Some pace notes, the French, for example, they use speeds in their notes. I never did. I used only the degree of, of, uh, of turn in the corner, whether it's a little corner, a sharp corner, a very sharp corner, and I had various grades, uh, in my, uh, shorthand notes for that. And we would do it once, then we would drive over again with the co-driver calling the notes out to me. And we would go a little bit quicker each time. We would probably do it five or six times uh, on any particular stage to be sure we made changes uh, so that by the time we were finished, uh, in theory, and in fact we proved this, in theory, I could drive over a road that I had never seen before in my life. If my co-driver had been there and made a correct set of pace notes, whatever the, whether it was day, night, raining, snowing, sunshine, that made no difference on my notes. I could drive over a road that I had never seen by, in my life absolutely flat out. Wow. Without crashing. And in fact, we actually proved that because at one point on the Tour de France in 1972, I think, or 73, I was driving a Ferrari Daytona 365 GTB, which is, I'm sure everybody listening here knows is a real monster of a car, big, fast, heavy. And we had one of these special stages down on the, uh, on the French Spanish border in the Pyrenees. And it was a typical rally-type stage, race up one side of a mountain, over the top, and down the other, uh, flat out against the clock. It was at around six in the morning, just getting daylight. It was a little bit misty. It was raining. We had Atlanta, Georgia-type red mud running across the road, and, and I had never seen it in my life, and I set the fastest time. That's incredible. In that monster of a car, in conditions like that. So, so if I understand you correctly, you didn't like on a typical race course. You would run the course and you would practice. You basically don't practice when you do rallies. Then, Is, do I understand you correctly? Uh, no, no, you do practice. Oh, you do uh, practice. Okay, you, pra you don't practice together. You, it's up to the driver. If the driver feels he doesn't want to practice, you just go. You get to the start, you drive, and that's it. But if you want to win. You do, like I just said, you go out and you practice one stage, and then you go back and you practice it again, and you practice it five or six or seven times, changing your notes possibly each time so that the notes are absolutely perfect okay. by the time you do it on the event. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Now, let's just jump to the Targa Floria, for example. Now, you know, you're talking about road courses. The Targa Floria in Sicily is basically a closed road course. What, what it is. Yeah, it's a pure road. It's pure 42 miles of just closed mountain road. Now you have set numerous records down there on that road course. Is that considered? Would that be considered a rally? No, or? no, it's a, no, no, no. It's a pure race. Pure race. It's Ten laps over forty-two mile 
circuit on mountain roads in Sicily. Okay. I have an advantage, I have to tell you, with, with both with rallies and with the Targa Florio and with other uh, notorious tracks like the Nürburgring. Oh, yes. Germany, which was 14-mile track in the Eiffel Mountains. I discovered very early on uh, in my career choice that I have an almost photographic memory for roads. Oh, okay. Which means I can't remember it totally the first time, but the, the Targa Florio, for example, by the time I had done, I mean, it's 42 miles around, twisting, turning, up and down through three uh, towns, uh, and by the time I had done, oh, I would say, 20 laps, I knew it, uh, practicing, and the first time I raced there, before I went back for the second time to win it, after 20 laps, I knew it absolutely, totally, every inch of the road. That's uh, that's where that's... I would be on the road. What if you took me in a? If you had taken me blindfolded in a helicopter, plonked me down on the road somewhere, twirled me around three times, and took the blindfold off, I could have told you which direction I would be going in the race, which gear I would be in, which part of the road I would be on, which the next, what the next corner would be, and so on. Wow, that's amazing. When you made the transition from rallies to road racing, yep. did would you say the rally driving really gave you an edge over some of your competition? Ab- absolutely, totally. Yes, it helped tremendously in, in certain ways. One of the things I had a reputation for in race racing as well, um, as I was good at driving difficult cars, but I was also very good at driving in the rain. Oh, really? Now, uh, everybody at Sebring this weekend... Uh, you know, it rains there sometimes as well. Right. And and uh, there were a few of us, particularly in Europe, who were very good in the rain. Jackie X was always very good in the rain, and he won at Sebring. Hans Stuck was very good in the rain. We we were, we were part of you know, driving in the rain. There were three groups of three people. There were those who simply hated it and didn't want to drive in the rain. Denny Hume, for example, was one of those. Can you hear me still? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, okay. Um, then there were the vast majority who didn't really like it, but they would put up with it. And then there were a few nutters like Jackie X and Jackie Stewart and Hans Stuck and me and a few others. We actually used to love driving in the rain. Well, now, go ahead, because I'm, think, I'm thinking... Because of that, we were pretty good at it. I'm thinking the, the, the thing that comes to mind is the Molson Strait yeah. at, at 200 plus miles an hour in the rain. Tell us a, tell us a story about that. Well, there are uh, other people have stories, but uh, um, early on with the the first 917s, the very first 917, for example, was in 1969, and it was a pretty nasty car to drive. Uh, Even on the straight at Le Mans, it wandered all all over the road, and we couldn't go through the kink at the end of the straight flat out. By the following year, in 1970, uh, I was the only one to choose to drive a long tail 917 with the five liter engine and i with that car i was the first to set the lap record round le mans at over 150 mile an hour average wow and i could drive uh, uh, i found with that car uh, it was doing very close to 250 miles an hour on the mulzahn straight and uh, before up until then uh, the kink almost looked like a corner, you know, at that speed. It was, uh-huh. it was more than just a kink. And I remember during practice, I spent a lot, a number of laps coming to the kink and saying, I'm going to go flat, and then I would just lift off a bit. And after a few laps, I finally decided, it's got to be flat. So I just kept my foot flat on the gas, going through the kink, and I came out through the other side, still doing 250 miles an hour. And I thought, well, that was easy. Uh, because the car had made so much improvement to us since the previous year. And I discovered that at night, in the rain, I could still go same speed on the Mulsanne Strait and still go flat out through the kink in the middle of the night in the rain. What was going through your mind? Nothing. I knew I could do it. I knew the car could do it. One of the things that happened was that uh, having coming from rallies, I was very used to driving unstable cars because driving rally cars are always driving on 
literally unstable surfaces, you know, gravel, mm. ice and snow and so on. So the car is really pointing in a straight line. It's usually going sideways in one direction or the other. And so I was used to it. And so even with racing cars at high speeds, uh, when the car got a little bit out of shape in the rain, it really didn't bother me because I was used to it. That's incredible. Let's jump forward here because we've got a few minutes left. And I want to talk a little bit about the making of the movie Le Mans. And uh, you were doing some of the driving scenes. And uh, what I want to know is, uh, all right, during the filming of Le Mans, you did a lot of the close-up high-speed shots in the 917 for Steve McQueen. Tell us a little bit about that, what that was like. Well, uh, actually, I wasn't there as long as I would have liked to have been because it, it coincided with my starting to come backwards and forwards to the United States running in Can-Am and Trans-Am. Mm-hmm. But it was great fun. You know, a, a lot of the, the shots in the in in the film itself are taken um, from the the camera car that I was driving. What The way the, the, the film people did it, they took the little lid off the front to... Uh, off the front uh, trunk, if you like, there is actually a little tiny trunk in the front of a 917. Mm-hmm. Not that you can get anything in there, but it's there. Um, and they mounted a little uh, scaffolding for a film a film camera in there. And then on a lot of the others, they simply took off the entire right door and built a little uh, scaffolding sticking out from the side of the car uh, so that you had... Uh, you know, these shots looking straight forward past the front wheel and into, literally into the back of, of cars that I was coming on, on, up on and then overtaking for the benefit of the film. And those shots, many of them, were done at actually real racing speeds. That was my next question. How fast were you yeah, going? They were done at real racing speeds because with the cooperation of the of uh, the city of Le Mans and the police, of course, and the gendarmerie in France, they were uh, McLean, Steve was able to close off various sections of the road, uh, you know, as he wished for the film. So we had uh, uh, cases like that where the into- virtually the entire length of the Mulzahn straight through the kink down to uh, down to the uh, Mulzahn corner was closed so we were running on closed road and literally running at racing speeds that's amazing now you said you also did i catch it did you also drive the uh, camera car too for a while the ford gt 40 no 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 i only drove 917 camera with the cameras on okay 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 uh, but then there was another camera car which was actually a porsche 908 which had a camera mounted uh, and of course in those days they weren't electronic they had to change uh, uh, you know film uh, cassettes but but that was uh, driven for the entire race. It actually finished the race. Really? It, yeah. Uh, and, it, and it, you know, it, it had to stop every hour for them to change film cassettes. Uh, and it, uh, but it was running at race at what it was racing speed the whole race. And it, I believe, it actually did about half the distance of the winning car in the race. That's amazing. And then another thing that many people probably don't realize was that. Uh, Steve actually took nine complete camera crews with him to Le Mans, and during the race itself, all nine of them finished, uh, filmed the entire 24-hour race. So that's all live footage. So virtually everything you see that you know looks like real racing in the film was real racing. Wow. Well, that's a milestone film. It really is. It was it one really of my favorites. Was, yeah. yeah. All right, we got a couple minutes left, and you've authored two books. Tell us about your two books real quick. Well, the, the very first one, um, uh, the, the Porsche High Performance Driving Handbook, mm-hmm. it was, uh, my goodness, it was such a long way. It was over, over 20 years ago. I had written the foreword for another author that you, I'm sure many of your listeners will know, uh, Randy Leffingwell, who's written a lot of Porsche books. And I wrote a, a foreword for one of his books. And then Motor Books, uh, the publishers, called me and they said, look, you write well, why don't you write us a book? So I said, okay, what do you want? So they came up with all sort of history books, and I said, no, I can't do that. I'm not a historian. Other people have done that before. And they said, all right, write us a How to Drive a Porsche book. And I said, okay, that sounds good. So I wrote the book. It, uh, it's called the Porsche High Performance Driving Handbook. It's not just about driving Porsches. A lot of it is, because a lot of it, uh, you know, it concerns driving the 911s with the weight toward the rear and that sort of thing. Uh, but it, a lot of it is, is basic uh, high-performance driving, which applies to other, other forms of cars as well. As well. 
And believe it or not, after 20, over 20 years, it is still selling well. Well, that's good. Is that... It doesn't make me the same sort of money as Tom Clancy's books did. <laughs> <laughs> but by motor, motor standards, it's, it's still actually selling well. And then a few years ago, I wrote another one, uh, uh, David Bull, the publisher who publishes many, many, many motor racing and motorcycle racing books, asked me to, to publish what is basically autobiography, uh, which I did. Okay. And that has been uh, uh, reprinted a couple of times. Now it is finally out of print, and that's the uh, um, literally an autobiography uh, covering my entire life, literally from the word go. Oh, that's good. So if anybody wants to get a hold of these books, where would they go? Would they go to Amazon or something like that? Or would they find uh, them in a bookstore? Best of all, they come to me. Come to you. Okay, do you want to give out your... Yeah, you can, get... can go to Amazon, but best of all, <laughs> they, they, they just type me in, go to Google or VicAlfred.com, and uh, anybody, especially anybody who's listening tonight who comes and does that, uh, and mentions, uh, you know, this program, and that's how they come to me there. My wife... Um, when we were living in Europe, long before we came to America, uh, she's French or was, and we're now we're now very proud Americans. Okay. But, uh, and uh, she always had been in sales, and she's a very very she's not very good at giving discounts. She's very good at getting them, okay. not giving them. But but now I've got around around to my way of thinking. So when people fans call, they don't call, but when they write and come to me for things. They get special, special treatment. Anything that else for comes back, autographed and that sort of thing. And uh, go and look at my website. It's terrific. There's a whole load of uh, wonderful memorabilia, uh, paintings, art, giclées, originals, models, and so on. Super. All right, so it's VicAlford.com. They just Google in VicAlford.com. They can find your, your uh, website. Absolutely. There. Super. Yep. All right, Vic, hey, I want to thank you very much for taking a few minutes. I want to have you on again. I've got a lot more questions. We didn't get to them all. Would you be willing to come on again sometime and tell some more stories? Yes, I'd love to. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Super. I, okay. I know every every time I start talking, I know there's a whole load, a whole load more I could be saying, too. We never just, just never get to it. <laughs> yeah, somehow it seems to work out that way, doesn't it? We'll do it again, though. Okay. Hey, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Be sure and check out our website, GolfstreamMotorsports.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook. If you've missed any of our past shows, be sure and check out our podcast, Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Again, special thanks to my guest this evening, Vic Alford, the uh, most amazing race car driver. Occasionally, you can see him in Amelia Island. You can see him at Sebring, Daytona. You know, he runs the circuit here a little bit. So, uh, and don't forget this weekend, the Mustang Show in Pinellas Park. Sebring is coming up this weekend, and I hope to see some of you guys there. So stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. Take care, everybody. I don't mean to be telling tales out of school, but there's a fella in there who'll pay you $10 if you sing into his can. Downtown day. I'm not here to make a record, you dumb cracker. It broadcast me out on the radio. WTAN, Clearwater, Tampa Bay. WDCF, Dade City, Tampa Bay. WZHR, Zephyr Hills, Tampa Bay. Listen. You dumb cracker.